KPFK in Los Angeles, this is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Today we have to talk about Biden and Bibi, Israel and Hamas and Gaza. Later in the hour, we have comment and analysis from Amy Willens. She was Jerusalem correspondent for The New Yorker, and she's a longtime contributing editor at The Nation. But first, Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's editor-at-large of The American Prospect. Harold, welcome back. Always good to be here, John. Well, we're speaking at midday on Wednesday. Israel's war against Hamas has entered its 12th day, a week after Hamas killed at least 1,300 Israelis and wounded more than 3,300. In the Gaza Strip, the Israelis have killed about 3,500 Palestinians, wounded 12,000 since the war began and displaced hundreds of thousands. And Hamas is holding hostage more than, or maybe exactly, 199 soldiers and civilians, including some foreign nationals. Biden is in Israel as we speak today on Wednesday, where he affirmed American support for the coming Israeli invasion of Gaza. And he affirmed support for Israel's goal of eliminating Hamas, quote, entirely. But he warned them not to make the same mistakes we did after 9-11. He said the U.S. accepted Israel's claim that the explosion at the hospital in Gaza City was not caused by an Israeli bomb, but by an errant rocket fired by a terrorist group in Gaza. He pledged $100 million of humanitarian aid for the Palestinians in Gaza. And after meeting Israel's cabinet, he said, quote, the people of Gaza need food, water, medicine, and shelter, close quote. Netanyahu said he would comply But as of this hour, midday Wednesday, the Rafah crossing from Egypt into Gaza, where convoys of hundreds of aid trucks have been waiting for days, as of this hour, the only passage into Gaza from Egypt remains closed. And yesterday, the Israelis bombed it. Biden also told Israelis that the Hamas attack strengthened his commitment to a two-state solution to establishing a separate Palestinian state. So what's your assessment of Biden's trip as of this hour? Well, uh, it's, uh, it's still in formation, my assessment. I think the optics of hugging Bibi, uh, who is becoming, I think, distinctly non-kosher among uh, <laughs> most of the Israeli public, uh, were pretty rotten optics. I think the cautionary notes he sounded were needed and appropriate. I hope that behind the scenes, uh, people like Secretary of State Tony Blinken are uh, taking those cautionary notes and and making whole uh, pronouncements of them. Part of this is that Biden uh, sort of inherited uh, a conundrum which American presidents haven't dealt with well since about 1967, and a uh, all of the inherent contradictions uh, in the uh, Israeli-Palestinian state of affairs exploded while he was uh, while he's been president. He, he's walking a tightrope uh, between supporting the Israeli goal of eliminating Hamas, which is not a revenge tactic; it's a strategic tactic since Hamas has made clear it wants to eliminate Israel. But the whole problem of 
eliminating a group of maybe 20,000 within a population of 2 million in which the Hamas members are not wearing the equivalent of kick me t-shirts <laughs> is, is a huge problem. And it's kind of inherent in much of modern warfare, uh, where the whole notion of a surgical strike, which is a misnomer if ever there was one, is, is kind of defining in math terms a null set. There's hardly ever such a thing as a surgical strike, certainly not when uh, your uh, strategic enemy is uh, uh, dispersed among a large civilian population. I mean, you know, part of the problem with the Vietnam War was, you know, if you were only targeting the NLF or the Viet Cong or what have you, they proved to be uh, often indistinguishable from the whole Vietnamese population, uh, which is one reason why we did not win, as it were, the Vietnam War. Biden said that in private conversations, he asked Netanyahu what he called, quote, tough questions. He did not say what they were. I'm hoping he asked, once Israel topples Hamas, who will govern Gaza? I guess Netanyahu thinks he will. Well, I don't think Israelis want Netanyahu even to govern Israel. So uh, I'm, I'm not sure that that's a very uh, acceptable answer. You know, uh, the New York Times columnist Tom Friedman is somebody who generally I've opposed steadily for a good 25 years on issues of free trade, etc., but has been really very good uh, in his recent writings in pointing out that, you know, Bibi and his uh, cohort have been uh, undermining the Palestinian Authority for decades and uh, actually by essentially heeding everything the settlers in the West Bank have demanded, put most of the army there and leaving the border with Gaza relatively unprotected. If he's not willing to let the Palestinian Authority run things, uh, it's not clear who is left in, uh, in either the West Bank or Gaza uh, to represent the Palestinians. He simply just wished them away and that has proven notably unsuccessful in the last fortnight. Well, Biden's planned meeting with the president of the Palestinian Authority, Mahmoud Abbas, which was originally scheduled to take place in Amman after he left Tel Aviv, that of course was canceled after the, what do we call it, explosion at the hospital. He says he will speak with Abbas on the plane going home. We do know that he called Abbas on Saturday and said publicly, quote, Hamas does not stand for the Palestinian people's right to dignity and self-determination, close quote, which is a way of saying the United States does recognize the Palestinians' right to self-determination. And National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan said Sunday on Face the Nation that it was critical that Israel, quote, embrace the rule of law and the laws of war, which he reminded them include, quote, the protection of civilians and the protection of those people who are trying to get to safety, as well as their ability to access food, water, medicine, shelter. These things should be respected, Sullivan said. So the United States is saying a lot has been for the last week, saying many of the right things, don't you think? Uh, I do. I do. And whether this has any effect on the Israeli government is unfortunately a separate question. The, the 
U.S. response to the surprise attack on Pearl Harbor was not to say, oh, my Lord, we need to repeal the Oriental Exclusion Act. It was to vow, you know, to bomb the hell out of uh, out of Japan, uh, which we certainly did eventually. Uh, under those mindsets, uh, we need to be even more forceful, if it is possible, uh, to make clear to the Israeli government what is a sensible strategic response and 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 what is just a spasm of understandable rage, which, you know, only matter, only makes things worse. Biden did say on 60 Minutes last Sunday, I think it would be a mistake for Israel to occupy Gaza again. What do you think about Biden calling a new occupation of Gaza a mistake? I would call it a disaster, a potential disaster or a crime. Yeah, well, you know, I, I mean, I think that's about as much as you can expect from an American president of any stripe under under these conditions. But I mean, you know, his analysis is clear that it would it would be a really bad thing. And what he chooses to call it is more dictated, I think, just by uh, sort of the exigencies of American politics. Okay. Well, let's talk about American politics. Um, in Congress, 420 representatives signed a resolution supporting Israel, condemning Hamas, and not mentioning Palestinian civilians. Then a separate letter from leaders of the Progressive Caucus, Pramila Jayapal and Mark Pocan, urged Biden to push for access to food and water in Gaza and ensure that Israel follows international law, which Biden's people have already announced they are in favor of. That got only 55 signatures in the House of Representatives. And then a third letter was, uh, resolution was put forward on Monday calling for immediate de-escalation and ceasefire in Israel and occupied Palestine and for sending humanitarian aid to Gaza. This was led by Cori Bush, Rashida Tlaib, and AOC. That got a total of 13 signatures. This is after Israel had left, you know, 3,000 people dead in Gaza, 12,500 12, wounded, forced hundreds of thousands from their homes, cut off water, food, medicine, and fuel. 13 members of Congress say, that's enough. That's, now it's time to stop. What's, what's the politics here? Complicated. You know, and this gets back to the question of how do you uh, eliminate Hamas, which is interspersed in a, uh, a mass civilian population. Clearly, uh, a lot of progressive Democrats thought that the, the first uh, resolution, which certainly, or the 55-member agreed to uh, resolution, was about as far as they could go, but calling for an immediate ceasefire, which essentially leaves Hamas in place, was not a place where they choose, chose to go, even though, as you pointed out, going after Hamas uh, is, is a terribly messy and uh, civilian killing process. I am not surprised that essentially the squad and a few other members uh, were the only ones who called for the immediate ceasefire. And of course, we've seen that in the past, uh, APAC uh, primaries Democrats who aren't considered to be enthusiastic enough in their support for Israel. That's right. Uh, and that was certainly a, 
uh, a factor in the 2022 primary elections, unseating even a longtime, basically pro-Israeli uh, member of Congress, Andy Levin, because by APAC standards, he uh, cared too much about Palestinian rights. So that's a factor as well. But, you know, I mean, there is uh, among uh, young progressives, I think you would find a great deal of support for the ceasefire call from 13 House members. I mean, the Democratic Party, always the multi-tendency party, you know, contains a lot of people who think that correctly, I would say actually most Democrats, that Palestinians have suffered unjustly under the Israeli occupation. So um, it's it's very tricky terrain uh, for uh, elected Democrats and even progressive elected Democrats. So let's talk about the American left in Hamas, which means talking about DSA, Democratic Socialists of America is by far the biggest socialist organization in recent American history. You're one of the original members. How many years have you been associated with DSA and its forebears? Uh, 48. <laughs> joined in 1975, joined DSOC. And there is a, let's call it a vigorous debate going on within DSA and outside of DSA about positions they have taken and their different cha local chapters have taken. Tell, let's talk about that. That's true. Well, the or original flashpoint for which DSA was roundly criticized by both members and non-members was its promoting a rally uh, the day after the uh, Hamas raid, or the murder raid, which is what it was, which was essentially a, a pro-Hamas rally. Uh, <clears throat> that, you know, to people like me, suggested a number of things. It suggested the general inexperience of the members of the National Political Committee, it, uh, who, who also did not condemn Hamas specifically until much more recently bowing to membership pressure and also the pressure of progressive allies. That, that caused a firestorm. But for some of us, it also signaled that a kind of uh, sectarian insularity, which has long been apparent in DSA's leadership, though is not necessarily at all reflected in rank and file sentiment, was uh, entrenched and just going to take positions that frankly made the socialist prospects in, in the United States always somewhat slim, significantly slimmer. Now it's time for your Minnesota moment. That's news from my hometown of St. Paul that you won't get from Sean Hannity. The Twin Cities chapter of DSA issued a new statement uh, yesterday, quote, we strongly condemn attacks on civilians by Hamas. In our previous statement, we made a conscious choice to center the lives of oppressed people in Palestine. Palestinians have suffered under colonial violence and apartheid for decades. However, not mentioning the mass death and kidnapping of Israeli civilians instead gave the impression that we were unconcerned about the tragic civilian casualties that have occurred as a result of Saturday's attacks. This is not the case. We grieve for those who have been killed in Israel and Palestine. We grieve alongside those whose lives have been torn apart by this bitter ongoing struggle. The bloodshed of the last few days has been utterly devastating. Our Jewish and our Palestinian friends and family members 
both here in the United States and abroad, are faced with astonishing loss and pain. Close quote, DSA Twin Cities. What do you think about that statement? I think two things. The statement in and of itself is great. The fact that it's clearly, you know, on second thought uh, suggests a kind of uh, both moral and strategic idiocy uh, that was its prelude. And, uh, you know, from both moral and strategic grounds, uh, you know, you have to wonder what many of the leaders of the organization uh, are thinking. My view is it is good that they have issued this clarification, changed their minds, perhaps even. This is, this is much better to have second thoughts than to stick with their first thoughts. Absolutely, absolutely. But what kind of mental calculations, if any, do you go through to come up with your first thoughts? What is your stance regarding your membership, 44 well, years old? There are a lot this- of members who are se- severely uh, unhappy with the stance of the organization. Most of the younger members that I know who are severely unhappy are trying to uh, essentially uh, compel uh, you know, the organization to do what the Twin Cities local did. And many of the older folks, my contemporaries, who aren't really all that active in the organization and don't feel uh, that they have much capacity to uh, produce the kind of change that is necessary, uh, many of us just decided to take a walk. And I'm one of the people who, after 48 years as a member, took a walk. I should also say that I have a rather uniquely uh, advantaged form of activism, which continues unabated, which is I write three times a week for the American prospect. And, uh, you know, often it's sort of my version of pure socialism is what I write, and that's not going to change. But the conclusion I really reached was that under its current leadership, which is hard to dislodge, DSA is going to damage the prospects for socialism, not, not make them better. And so all the more reason that I decided to leave. Meanwhile, the class struggle in California continues, and there's a few things we need to talk about here. Kaiser workers announced they had won their strike. Uh, what, what can you tell us about that? Well, it was a three-day strike of support staff who were concerned with uh, understaffing, which has certainly been a, a, a reality in, in most American hospitals and clinics, and a a failure to uh, keep pace with the rising cost of living. The Kaiser workers won uh, uh, a raise, the support staff, to $25 an hour. Now, there was a bill passed by the legislature and signed by the governor, which specifically said support staff in hospitals will have their wages raised to $25 an hour, but it kicked in very slowly. Uh, and Kaiser apparently realized that if they're going to do it eventually and their workers were out on strike, they should do it now, and that's what Kaiser agreed to. The bill that Newsom signed raises the minimum wage for, this is nursing assistants, cleaners, security guards, to $25 an hour starting June 1st, 2026, with $23 per hour minimum, June 1st, 2024, 
$24 per hour, June 1st, 2025. Uh, the governor said this will help solve the shortage of tens of thousands of healthcare uh, support workers uh, in California. The hospitals have said they're already on the verge of going broke, but it doesn't seem that way. They've actually made billions of dollars in profits at Kaiser in the last uh, year. They have indeed. And, you know, the Kaiser contract may cause an immediate shortage at non-Kaiser hospitals, <laughs> since you could go to Kaiser doing the same job and get that 25 bucks now. So, you know, such complaints should be taken with some skepticism. We've also been following the UAW strike, which continues without much progress, apparently. Do you know anything about it that uh, hasn't made it into the headlines? Well, not that hasn't made it into the headlines, but I think uh, with the companies offering uh, raises over four years at a total about $20, and the union basically asking for raises over four years that come to $30, uh, there is a significant gap there, and I think the companies are going to be compelled to get a lot closer to 30 before this strike is settled. The major victory for the UAW here is General Motors' agreement to uh, cover its uh, electric battery factories under the UAW contract because uh, that is the future of the industry and the UAW wanted to ensure uh, that workers in the future industry would, uh, wouldn't suffer a penalty for uh, a, a change in the technology for which the profits only went to management. And we also, of course, have been following all summer the Hollywood uh, actors strike. The, the studios and streamers broke off negotiations uh, uh, this week. We all sort of thought that once they'd settled with the writers, then they would settle with the actors, but they're not doing that. Yeah, the writers are historically the most squeaky wheel in labor relations in Hollywood. So I am surprised by that as well. But you know, there's a there's a commonality to what the UAW is dealing with and what the Hollywood unions are dealing with. And that is the introduction of new technology. In the case of Hollywood, it's shifting to distribution through streaming and uh, the advent of artificial intelligence. In the case of the auto workers, it's the advent of uh, electric powered cars rather than fossil fuel powered cars. And this is a kind of long historic uh, issue in labor relations. When you introduce a new technology, will the workers uh, be uh, penalized in essence for that? Or will they share in the productivity gains that the new technology brings? So that's the commonality right now between uh, Merrill Streep's union and the union <laughs> of the, the, the people who build uh, Jeeps and Ford pickups. Finally, Donald Trump. Campaigning in Iowa yesterday, Trump pledged that if reelected, he would expel immigrants who support Hamas and ban Muslims, all Muslims apparently, from entering the United States. And while he was at it, he said he'd also ban the entry of Marxists, communists, and fascists. What do you think about these uh, promises? Some of them are going to require real in-depth interviews with uh, virtually everybody, <laughs> which I don't think are going to happen, but it's pure Trump. Trump is the id of the right, and he just lets it out, and you know none of it meets constitutional standards, but then in, in Trump's view, neither 
did the peaceful progression of power account for much either. Harold Meyerson, read him at prospect.org. Thank you, Harold. Always good to be here, John. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. For more comment and analysis on Israel and Hamas, we turn to Amy Willens. She's the New Yorker's former Jerusalem correspondent and the author of Martyr's Crossing, a novel about the Oslo peace process in Jerusalem in the mid-90s, among other books. She's written for the New York Times, The Atlantic, and The Nation, where she's a longtime contributing editor. She's also a 2020 Guggenheim Fellow, and she teaches in the literary journalism program at UC Irvine. Amy, welcome back. Thank you so much, John. We are taping this conversation on what is Tuesday night in Israel and Gaza. This is before Biden's trip there on Wednesday. And we are recording this the day that reports in the New York Times say Israel bombed the hospital in Gaza City. What would you like to see happen now after the bombing of the hospital? Well, I think it's time for Israel to stop and think rather than react emotionally. And um you know, that may be hard with someone like Netanyahu at the head of the country, but I think they should cease fire immediately, stop the bombings. I think they should open up passage for humanitarian aid in large quantities, contributing perhaps themselves to that humanitarian aid. I think they should uh, contribute medical aid immediately. They should bring heavy uh, vehicles to the border with Gaza so that the Palestinians can begin cleaning up rubble and getting to uh, victims of the bombings. They should do all the humanitarian things that are correct in an attempt to rescue themselves from the debacle they're now putting forward. And of course, Israel is still reeling from the toll of the Hamas attacks on October 7th. It's now 1,400 dead, at least 3,300 wounded, 289 of the dead were soldiers, the rest civilians. Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad are holding hostage something like 199 soldiers and civilians, including some foreign nationals. You wanted to say something about the hostages? Well, I think it's important to think about the hostages when you look at what Israel is doing in Gaza right now. The families of the hostages aren't very happy that their hostages are being bombed along with the entire Palestinian uh, civilian population of Gaza and the, the Hamas perpetrators of the crimes. Theoretically, they're all there in Gaza. So, you know, I think that they are an element that Israel usually considers very carefully, like the soldier. Uh, I think his name is Gidon Shalit, who was held by Hamas for five years. And the Israelis did not bomb even a street in Gaza for him because they cared about his survival. And as you know, Israel has cut off food, water, medicine and fuel to all of Gaza, more than two million people. Hundreds of thousands have been forced from their homes. And now Biden, as we speak, is on his way to Israel. As the New York Times said, the trip, quote, 
ties Mr. Biden and the United States to the bloodshed in Gaza. Biden will also go to Amman to meet Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas, Jordan's King Abdullah, and Egyptian President al-Sisi. Doesn't the trip seem like an endorsement of what Israel is about to do in its invasion of Gaza? Or, or could it be that Biden will be able to restrain them? Well, it feels like an endorsement. You don't send aircraft carriers to the shores and then arrive yourself in the middle of a war without it seeming like an endorsement of Israel's behaviors. But it, of course, depends on what you say publicly, if he is going to give even a public comment while he's there. I mean, my guess is the attempt is to both restrain slash calm Israel and also uh, shore up support in the region where it can be found for um, some kind of you know, refusal to accept further hostilities against Israel itself. Yeah, you say the key is what Biden says when he gets there. He did say in a call on Saturday to the head of the Palestinian Authority on the West Bank, Mahmoud Abbas, Biden said, quote, Hamas does not stand for the Palestinian people's right to dignity and self-determination. And National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan said Sunday on Face the Nation that it was critical that Israel, quote, embrace the rule of law and the laws of war. He specified that meant the protection of civilians and the protection of those people who are trying to get to safety, as well as their ability to access food, water, medicine, shelter. These things should be respected, Sullivan said. So the United States is saying a lot of the right things, don't you think? They seem to be speaking out of two sides of their mouths. They're saying all of the right things, if you consider Sullivan to be a spokesman, which he is, and they're supporting Israel with military uh, backup. And Israel is doing what it's doing. So how are the the um, water and fuel and electricity and communications are still cut off for those people? 1.1 million, if Israel has its way, people who are leaving northern Gaza in a flood. And how can they claim to be doing anything other than tormenting them and trying to kill them. And they bombed some of the convoys. I don't know on purpose or not on purpose, but if you're an army, you're supposed to be able to see a convoy. And now if uh, if it's true that Israel bombed this hospital, whether on purpose or not on purpose, I mean, they're attacking the people they're telling to flee. And Biden was on 60 Minutes Sunday. He said, quote, I think it would be a mistake for Israel to occupy Gaza again, close quote. But what do you think about Biden calling a new occupation of Gaza a mistake? You mean it's a little small? <laughs> yes. That seems to be what they're doing. When you come in on the ground, it feels like an occupation. You know, one is a bombardment and the other is, is a possible occupation. I also feel like Gaza is occupied. So a new occupation is a concept. I mean, I understand that means a political occupation with international acknowledgement that that's what you're doing rather than just putting them in what is often referred to as an open air prison. So yeah, I think it would be a mistake for Israel. I think it's a mistake for Israel to continue setting up a situation where the um, perennial enmity continues. And this can only 
be a cue for the Palestinians as a group, as opposed to just Hamas, to continue that kind of relationship. And I think it's also important to notice that Biden is criticizing an occupation. He didn't say it would be a mistake to invade, destroy, and then leave. Right, which may be exactly what the Israelis are planning to do. I mean, I haven't heard peep from them about rebuilding the rubble they have created on the ground. I mean, I have to say, while saying all of this, I just want to reiterate that October 7th was a hideous, disgusting display of inhumanity. Well, here's a question Biden should ask uh, Bibi Netanyahu. Once Israel achieves its goal of toppling Hamas, who will govern Gaza? I guess Netanyahu thinks he will. I have a suggestion. Hamas will govern govern it. You can topple it, you can kill it, but what creates it is still in place, especially after this attack on Gaza. I just think, I mean, I understand Israel's anger in response to October 7th. The, the, the horror that they are feeling is very real. And for the Israelis, it's very personal. But you have to think about your country and its future safety and not just about revenge. And this feels very much like revenge. Hamas, of course, knew this attack would provoke massive Israeli retaliation, certainly bombing and probably an Israeli ground invasion, maybe sustained occupation of the civilian population of Gaza. And Hamas knows it cannot protect the people of Gaza from Israeli retaliation. So what, what do you think is their strategy here? Why would provoking a massive at Israeli attack on the civilians of Gaza be something that Hamas wanted? Well, I think they don't care about protecting Palestinians right now. Their goal is longer. They want to embroil Israel in a terrible situation that can lead it down a path of destruction for the Israeli nation and getting it involved in a, an occupation of Gaza, a long and bloody occupation of Gaza, having it bomb hospitals. You know, I'm not saying that Hamas is responsible for Israel bombing a hospital. That's carrying it a little far, but bringing it in, attracting it by doing this terrible atrocity in the um, kibbutzim around Gaza, I think um, that draws Israel into an embroglio where it loses all global support. And that's what they'd like to see, along with Hezbollah and Iran, certainly Syria. We've been told that the initial attack on October 7th was Israel's 9-11. That actually underestimates the impact. The percentage of the Israeli population killed that day is many times greater than 9-11. The methods of killing were far more personal and bloody. Taking those civilians hostages was especially terrible. But the 9-11 comparison does work in a couple of ways. One is refusing to talk about the root cause of the attack. Namely, in this case, the Israeli occupation of the Palestinian territories. Of course, the history here goes back to 1967, when Israel seized control of the West Bank and Gaza. And before that, of course, in 1948, when the new state expelled hundreds of thousands of Palestinians, Israel and many of its supporters simply deny the facts of the occupation. You wrote at thenation.com about the strange ability of Israelis to simply forget about the occupation and live as if Tel Aviv were Miami. 
I doubt there are any Palestinians on the West Bank or in Gaza who can forget about the occupation. Not many of them were invited to the supernova rave that was under attack when Hamas came in on October 7th. That, that rave, to me, it's almost too tragic an example of how normalized Israelis feel around the occupation. They could be, you know, five or 10 miles out of Gaza and be conducting a rave, not considering what's happening inside the fences and barriers that contain the population of Gaza under basically Israeli control. The idea that they were there is so amazing and, and, and an example of how Israelis behave around issues of the occupation, except when it bursts forth in this kind of violent way. We've been wondering how much support Hamas has among Palestinians, in, especially in the Gaza Strip. There's been only one election uh, in 2006 in, the, in Gaza and the West Bank. There was international monitoring of an election for the Palestinian Assembly. Hamas did get a few more votes than Fatah, 44% for Hamas, 41% to Fatah, which I looked this up. Hamas won most of the seats to the new parliament. Fatah, just to remind people, was a secular socialist organization which had led the Palestinian uh, movement for decades under Yasser Arafat. It was cooperating with the United States and Israel and in the Oslo Accords. And Hamas was an Islamic fundamentalist movement that refused to recognize Israel, certainly not the Oslo Accords, and had been carrying out terror attacks against Israel for the previous five years. And it was after those elections in 2006, in 2007, Hamas took control of Gaza, expelled Fatah. Neither the Palestinian Authority nor Hamas has ever had an election since. So we really don't know. Neither side wants Palestinians to vote, it seems like. There is a fascinating poll of Gaza conducted in July by an American institute. Let me just recite these findings because there's nothing else like this. They found 62% of the people in Gaza wanted Hamas to maintain a ceasefire with Israel. Half agreed with the following proposal. Hamas should stop calling for Israel's destruction and instead accept a permanent two-state solution based on the 1967 borders. 70% of the people in Gaza supported a proposal that the Palestinian Authority should, quote, send officials and security officers to Gaza to take over the administration there, with Hamas giving up separate armed units. 70% supported that, 47% strongly agreed, and we're told this is not a new view. This proposal has had majority supported Gaza since they first started asking this question in 2014. This poll was conducted by the Washington Institute for Near East Policy, just led by, among other people, Dennis Ross, who's a famous negotiator of Mideast peace going back to the first uh, Bush and then the Clinton administration. So let's assume that this poll is sort of accurate. In July, a majority of the people of Gaza did not want a war and wanted the Palestinian Authority to govern Gaza, not Hamas. How do you think Israel's war has changed that? Israel, of course, wants the Palestinians in Gaza to blame Hamas for provoking these attacks and to withdraw their support for Hamas. So the Palestinians are caught between dying because of the Israeli retaliation for what Hamas did 
and being disloyal to Palestine by feeling or saying what the Israelis want them to feel or say. So they're stuck. They know that the immediate, immediate cause of this bombardment was the Hamas action on October 7th. But they also know that the long picture is about the violence Israel has committed against them as well as small but horrific strikes against Israel by various uh, militants over the years, this one being the most bloody, most egregious, and most horrendous. So, you know, if I'm a mother in Gaza, I'm not feeling very warm toward the Israelis right now, but I would be extremely unhappy with Hamas for helping legitimize it, if you want to say that. I can't even really answer your question other than to say it's going to certainly make them feel more Palestinian, more alienated from Israel, angrier at Israel, whether it will make them also feel the same way about Hamas and its, uh, and who Hamas is loyal to. Is it loyal to the Palestinian people or is it loyal to its allies outside of Palestine? I don't know how they'll be analyzing that in the days to come, however many of them are left to analyze. Well, there's no doubt that Israel can, if it wants to, level Gaza City, kill more thousands of people, hunt down Hamas militants. The Israeli idea seems to be that the people of Gaza will learn that every suffering that Hamas inflicts on Israelis will be returned to them tenfold. And the Israelis believe that the Palestinians will, as a result, basically stop resisting the occupation once and for all. This is the Israeli plan right now. We'll do this, we'll be so harsh, we'll be so terrible. They will once and for all agree to stop resisting. What do you think of the idea that Israel's idea of crushing Hamas once and for all will solve this problem? Once and for all has to me a ring of genocide to it, especially looking at what's happening right now. You starve them, you take away their fuel and their electricity, and you bring in ground troops with an aerial bombardment. If you look at the photographs coming out of Gaza, I mean, putting to the side the human damage that we're seeing, the architectural, infrastructural uh, damage that we're seeing is an irrevocable symbol of what Israeli is planning for the Palestinians. And I say, and one always says, you knock them down, they come back stronger. You can't uproot this kind of thing through violence. It has to be a political solution to it. Of course, one has said this for years to the Israelis and their intransigence is pretty intense. We saw Yitzhak Rabin, the least likely person to organize a peace with the Palestinians, doing just that and struck down by the Israeli right, the religious right in Israel, as they were working toward this. It's always the right, then the religious on both sides. And then what, you know, people think Hamas is a left organization, but it's not. It's just an anti-colonial, anti-imperial organization. And these two have conspired against peace since I've been working in in the Middle East, certainly, and since before. I want to talk about the Israeli politics as well as American politics and the future of Netanyahu. He's clearly responsible for the stunning failures of intelligence and military preparedness. 
He was already facing the biggest opposition ever seen in the history of Israel over his efforts to undermine the Supreme Court. Will Netanyahu now or soon face the blame for his failures? Here the 9-11 parallels you know, are also worrying. George Bush, of course, was reelected after 9-11. Right. The United States is a big country. Not everyone was sitting in Washington and New York when 9-11 happened. Not everyone was fully aware of the Bush administration's uh, failure to address the problem before it knocked down buildings. But people knew what was going on in Israel with Netanyahu. It's not that much bigger than New Jersey, Israel. We can't hide. (laughs) And he is under indictment. He knows that if he's not, if he hasn't got executive privilege, he could go to jail. So he's holding on tight to that prime ministerial seat. And uh, instead of doing what any decent person would do, which is resign in the face of what happened on October 7th, or indeed taking responsibility. He hasn't even taken responsibility. He hasn't said, yeah, I'm responsible. He's afraid to say that because the Israelis know it already. So many members of his cabinet have said they're responsible of his military, have said it's my fault. But not not Netanyahu. He won't do that because he doesn't function that way. It's as if by responding super violently, he can get out of the responsibility for the violence that was done against his country. And I don't think it will work. I think he will fall. He'll either be prime minister for the rest of the history of Israel or he'll fall. But of course... The key force in Israeli domestic politics is the settler movement, these people who think God told them that Jews should live in the West Bank. And they're the decisive force in Israeli politics. They hold the balance of power, sort of, don't they? They have been. And I think Netanyahu wants to keep it that way. And he wants to keep the members, the right wing members and the uh, religious members of his coalition in it. So he, yes, he is very susceptible to the demands of the settler community. And one of the fears is that Gaza will be swept clean, you know, of Hamas, and settlers will be allowed to start settling around and even maybe inside of the Gazan uh, periphery. But wait a minute, God did not say that Jews should live in Gaza. He only said they should live in Judea and Samaria. Yeah, true, true. (laughs) One last thing, Uh, Israel and Mideast peace. Jared Kushner in 2020 said he had brought peace to the Mideast with what he called the Abraham Accords, which normalized diplomatic relations between Israel and some Arab countries, the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, Sudan, and Morocco. These accords were based on the idea that you could achieve peace between the Arab states and Israel by ignoring the Palestinians. You are, as we often say here, the chief Jared correspondent for this broadcast. How do the Abraham Accords look at this point? Not great. He should have thought about Ishmael when he was making the uh, Accords. It's it, There are some Arab states, but that doesn't make a, a lasting or meaningful coalition. I don't know what the members of that accord are saying now. Probably not much. I'm waiting to see. I, but I think the destruction of this hospital could prove to be um, a moment, at any rate, of taking stock of what it, what the Israelis are really doing there. And it puts the 
question of Palestine at the center of not just Israeli politics, but of regional politics in a way that we would like to think opens the door to a settlement. A settlement and some kind of new thinking in Israel. But I have to say that new thinking in Israel is unlikely to move forward with the Netanyahu at the helm of government. Another topic, Egypt. Egypt has cooperated with Israel for decades in sealing off Gaza and enforcing the blockade ever since Hamas took power in Gaza. Now Egypt has been refusing to open the one way to get out of Gaza into Egypt, the Rafah crossing. They have said they don't want to become a refuge for Gaza residents. And they've said they don't even want Germany welcoming refugees who would exit Gaza via Egypt. Why is that? They don't want those refugees, of course. They believe there will be lots of seepage if they open it up and have Germans taking the refugees away. You can't take away 500,000 to 1.1 million people. And I think they also feel the solution to the Palestinian problem is not to move them to Egypt or, or Europe. And the Jordanians can speak to them about that. And the Lebanese also. They were moved out. They were pushed out in the catastrophe, the Nakba. And it's ongoing. It's just they become permanent, permanent refugees. No, Israel has to face up to what it is, what it has created and what it has to live with and decide how it's going to live with those people. And it, I think it is. It's always morally unacceptable to commit a genocide. And for Israel, I think it has a double, double immorality. Amy Willens, you can read her piece about Israel, Hamas and Gaza at thenation.com. Amy, thanks for talking with us today. You're welcome, Jim. A postscript. After we recorded this interview, Israel presented evidence that the center of the explosion in the hospital compound in Gaza City did not have a bomb crater, which Israel says demonstrates that the explosion was caused by an errant rocket fired by Palestinian Islamic Jihad rather than by an Israeli airstrike. The U.S. has backed Israel's position, but independent investigations are ongoing. That's it for today's Living in the USA. Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds. KPFK's Programming Traffic Director is Matt Perez. Thanks as always to Rye Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Living in the USA is recorded and produced at our Blythe Avenue studios in Los Angeles. If you miss part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at livingintheusapod.com. I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA. Oh, 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 o